0: Second Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be. We're going to look at the first four verses. Last week we just did an overview. These are Peter's final words, remember? These, these are, you know, the final words that we have of his before he dies and how important that is, right, anyone's final words, especially Peter, that he's giving to say, here's really how, what I want to leave behind. And the main theme of the whole book is the idea of growing in grace. Growing in grace. He says that both at the beginning, we'll look at that today, and at the very end in chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to start in these first four verses of 2 Peter. Would you read out loud with me 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? Reading together now. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, ...to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness... Through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Have you ever wondered what your status is? We often check the status of other things, right? What's the status of my Amazon package? It's supposed to be here within like one day now, right? And so they give us a tracking number and you can go online and you can check the status and say how quickly it will get here. Or what is the status of my government stimulus check, right? You can log on to irs.gov, type in your, your numbers, and they will tell you we don't know. No, I'm kidding, they're supposed to give you the status. What about in social situations? Have you ever, uh, maybe it's a new job, new employment, and you walk in the first day on the job and you meet the coworkers, and, you're, and you kind of wonder, okay, what's my status, right? And wh- what do they immediately label you as? Oh, that's the new person, right? They don't know anything. <laughs> uh, we don't know if we're going to like them yet, right? And you kind of have to figure out what, what is my standing, what's my relationship going to be like with all of these people? or sometimes it's a status that you know and it's well known as far as this is my title this is who I am or with family maybe there's a strange relationship in in your status or relationship or how someone else views you your standing before them could be strained or it could be very good we often wonder what our status in life is right we look at people really as an external thing and say, oh, that one, that, that must be someone who, you know, is wealthy or influential. They have a lot of status, of stature, of, of great standing. And so we, we esteem them. We, we look up to them. We might even idolize them, right? Because they have a high status. Today, in these four verses, we're going to look at our status, but not as an external, outward, man centered appearance, but instead our status as God sees it. And if there's any status that you should really be concerned about, it's not your stimulus check, it's not your Amazon package, it's not even how your coworkers or your family view you, really the status that you should be concerned about is, what does God think of me? What does God view me? Where, what is my standing before God? Because that's what ultimately matters so I've titled this message, and it sounds a little weird, so bear with me, but it's our divine status, our divine status, our status before God. Because you, you notice twice, there's, it's both in verse 3 and in verse 4, it talks about His divine power, and verse 4 talks about being partakers of the divine nature. And we're going to look at three things today. As it pertains to our status and how God looks at us as believers, we're going to look at the equal standing we have in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the exceptional power that God gives in verse 3. Then we're going to look at the excellent growth or the opportunity, really, for growth that God gives to us in verse 4. So, 2 Peter verses 1 through 4, our status. Simon Peter, he starts out and he gives his status how others would view. And notice how he leads into it. Simon Peter, we looked at last week of all that he went through. We did a, a brief overview, a synopsis of his life and how God had you know, used him in a great way, even though there was highs and lows of his life. Simon Peter, though, how does he view himself? It starts off with Simon Peter, a servant. So we see how he views himself as two things, a servant first of all, and an apostle. So what do those two ideas hold or mean? Well, the idea of servant really here is the idea of a bond slave. It's someone who is bound in duty in all of their life towards a master. And so it's not just a servant that can come and go, but it's a servant that is very much attached to a master And does the master's bidding. It has the idea of no ownership rights of themselves. Yet they willingly live under the authority of the master. Now our country's history obviously has a very scarred relationship with slaves and all of that. And so it's viewed very negatively, rightfully so. But here the idea is my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price I have a master who is good and gracious and God himself, and so I can willingly live under his authority. So that's how Peter viewed himself, a servant, but he also knew that he was an apostle, an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle, right? I mean, these, these are the big dogs, right? The people that are super Christians, you know, that we could never obtain to, right? That are just so far above that, you know, why... Well, we already looked at Peter's life. We knew he was a fisherman, a normal person, someone, though, who God, God chose and God commissioned. So when it comes to being an apostle, it wasn't something that Peter did himself. He, wasn't, he didn't get up one morning and say, hey, guys, I'm an apostle. When you get that, you usually get a cult or a false religion that follows, right? <laughs> no, that, that was not this at all. Instead, this was the idea of being commissioned or sent under the authority of a sender that's the idea of apostleship here that peter the disciples the apostles we call them they're called such because what did christ do what were christ's final words even to them he's saying go i send you to go spread the good news of the gospel how how i came jesus christ came to seek and to save those who are lost So Peter realizes, okay, I'm a servant, I'm a slave to Christ, but I've also been sent by Christ to proclaim his message. Now, I'm not calling you apostles or me an apostle, but is it not true that there are similarities that as disciples, we too have been sent by God to give the good news? And so this is how Peter views himself, but he he views it in a way that is, that is humble, not high and, and lifted up. He views it in a way that is based in the authority of who God is and not his own authority. In other words, he realizes his standing or his status before God. And you look at that, and Peter then turns and looks at all of us. And it's beautiful here. I love it in this first verse where he's, he says, I'm a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. And that's a very important statement right there because you may look at an apostle or a disciple like Peter or like the apostle Paul and say, wow, they're super Christians, right? They're mega Christians. And, that, and it's true, they did amazing and great things for God. But here's what Peter says. That the faith that you and I have in Christ, it's on an equal standing, it's on the same plane, the same status as the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Peter. You have obtained that same like precious faith. The ideal here is that when it comes to salvation, it's not like Peter got more saved than us, or that Paul had some, some different way or special way that he got saved. Or rescued, he's saying, "No, we're all in the same plane when we come to this world. Sinners, lost, condemned, enmity, enemies of God." And he's saying, "When you get saved, it's the exact same faith, the exact same salvation that's always been offered and always been available." So when it comes to your status, your standing, it's not like when it here, here's you know Paul and Peter. And then, you know, we're way down here. He's saying when it comes to our salvation, the status, the standing is the same. The same salvation, the, equal, the same equal privileges before God. The same value deserving equal respect and recognition. That idea of like precious faith has the idea of something that holds great value. What holds value in your life? Now, there's a lot of things that we say hold value, right? If you want to invest in something that's going to always hold value, what do you invest in? Well, I don't know because that changes, right? <laughs> but we would say, you know, something like a precious metal, that's going to at least hold some value and, and has and still does today. But he's saying your faith, actually, it's, it's never going to lose that. It's the same value that, that Peter got. So when, when Peter went to Christ... And, and, and put his faith in him, it's not like he got extra fries on the side with his salvation or more uh, patties in his hamburger or anything like that. It's the same standing, the same salvation that even today, 2,000 years later, that you and I have. So that should give us much confidence and hope that in our status before God, we have the same equal privileges and access to God. God that should give you much confidence and hope because you look at the story of Peter or of Paul or of the apostles, disciples, and you see how God has used them, how God has grown them, the ups and downs of their lives, and God is saying, you have the same access, the same salvation to me. In other words, your life, my life, can be one that God uses in a great way, that God, even in spite of the mistakes You can be a follower of me, a disciple of me. You can know God. You have access to God. Because it's not because of you being an apostle. It's because of Christ. So we all have that equal standing. And why is it? Why is it that we can all have the equal standing? In other words, why doesn't Peter, you know, he's a little higher on this salvation plane than any of us? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in the last part of verse 1. He says it's through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying it's because it's not based on your righteousness. It's not based on Peter's righteousness. It's not based on your own good works or your own moral aptitude. It's based on God's divine approval that he has judicially deemed right. The idea of righteousness here, righteousness of God, carries the idea of a courtroom scene where God is able to declare someone who's guilty, a sinner who's guilty, he's able to declare them righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So it's nothing good within us that says, hey God, I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a righteous person. Saying no, it's Christ's righteousness that God is able to justly say, You have the righteousness that is from Christ, and it's available to all who believe. And notice it comes from our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Really, the, the form here of that, that that phrase it says of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, but you could also really appropriately say, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, it's tying God and Christ together directly here. In other words, this is a bold and really blatant statement that Christ is God. Right here in the scriptures of saying Christ is God, and because of that, it's his righteousness that can say and declare you not guilty and righteous before God so that you have the same standing. So what's your status today? Before God, as God looks at you, where you're seated here tonight, this morning, it's nighttime somewhere, what is your status? Is your status one that God sees your sin, or does he see Christ's righteousness? Because Christ's righteousness is available to all who will believe. And so this is our equal standing that we have before God. And he goes on to say, for all those who do believe, who have that equal standing, that grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied unto you. This is then Peter's desire for all believers who have this standing. He wants grace and peace multiplied. Multiplication, right, is always the best way to get something. Addition, it takes time, right? If you're going to build a house one board at a time, because that's all you can afford in this market... Because lumber prices are so high, right? It's going to take you a long time to build. What do you want? You want multiplication. You don't want a two by four. You want 24 times four two by fours. Or, what? you know, multiplication is going to grow that. And he says, I want these two things to be multiplied in your life because of your standing, because of what your status is before God. And he says, grace and peace. We looked at last week as, at grace as God's kindness towards us in a very personal and intimate way. And that's really what grace refers to here. It's God freely extending himself, reaching down, inclining himself to people because he is disposed to bless or be near them. In other words, God wants to be near to his children, his people. He's inclined towards us. He stoops down and he wants to be kind towards his people. That's the idea of of grace here. It's that personal relationship of the kind closeness of God in our lives. But he also says peace. Peace be multiplied unto you. This idea of peace, we often think of peace as the opposite of war, right? It's peace and war. So instead of being enemies with one another, you know, you're actually friends with one another. But it has even, I believe, a a more full sense and the idea of peace really is wholeness or completeness. In other words, is your car think of it this way is your car at peace today and some of you you might have car a car that is in pieces right some of us have that and some of us it lasts for a long time some of you might have a car who is not completely at peace even all the though the pieces are there right there's certain aspects of your car that when you push the button or you press the go pedal things go clunk or kerchunk or, you know, smoke's coming out the back that really shouldn't. And you'd look at that car, and what do you say? This peaks, It's a piece of junk. I need to get rid of it. Help, right? Your car is not complete or whole. Now, when you buy a car, what do you hope for? You hope for a complete, a whole vehicle. And when you get a complete, whole vehicle, you are at peace with the vehicle too, right? But that's not usually how it works, because we live in a fallen world, Right? the car often is not at peace it breaks down it, it, it may even come with a factory with leaks you know underneath it all of those things but the idea here of, of peace is wholeness that all the essential parts are joined together and peter is saying i want this for you for me as a believer as a disciple as someone who has an equal standing before god i want you to have peace and see that you are complete You are whole because of what Christ has done for you. In other words, you have everything necessary to be a disciple of Christ, to be a Christian, to live the right way. So when he's saying grace and peace be multiplied unto you, it's talking about God's close and kind favor in your life and that you would be complete and whole in Christ. So it all flows out of this equal standing. So how does that come about? In other words, Have you felt at peace and have you felt God's grace this past week at all times? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel stressed. You ever get stressed? Sometimes I even get a little aggravated. Sometimes it's really hard to be patient. And I always say this, I was patient and then I had kids, right? And what that means is I wasn't really patient it's just that kids brought out the impatience in my life. And has taught me to be more long-suffering, right? Towards, one, towards those <laughs> little you know, rebels, which I love so dearly. And, and you could say that in, in all areas of life. It, it's hard to be patient with a health issue that you're going through. It's hard to be patient with a strained relationship. In other words, we know... That we're not always living in the reality of grace and peace being multiplied in our lives. So, how does it come about that we have this grace and peace? Well, he says it's through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It comes through knowledge. Now, this word knowledge is very important because when we hear the word knowledge, you think about just knowing something. And we often think about knowing statistical data or facts, right? I know. That in most cases, right, two plus two equals four. That's a fact. I know people try to prove otherwise, but we'll just say, okay, that's a basic fact that we we can know. Or I know that my wife has red hair, okay? That's that's a factor. It's something, yeah. But the idea here isn't just knowing facts about. It goes much deeper. This knowledge, this idea, has has a personal and intimate relationship with it. It's, it's almost the idea of experiencing it, right? It's the difference between a picture of the Grand Canyon and actually being in the Grand Canyon, right? It's, it's the difference between knowing my wife likes chocolate and flowers and actually getting her chocolate and flowers, you know, and experiencing that together. It, it's the difference between knowing that beef, specifically steak, cooked, you know, rare with a nice sear on it, is, is just amazing, right? Some of you, your mouth is watering. But it's a whole nother thing to go and experience that, right? To actually eat the steak. And here, Peter is saying it's through the knowledge, it's through actually a, an experience with God. And what I'm not saying here is go out and have a mystical experience and, you know, experience God. What I'm saying here is you have to know who God is through his word, and live and walk with him daily to have this experience. Because it's through the knowledge of God, this firsthand relationship with God, and of Jesus our Lord. Notice again how God, here it does separate them out, how God and Jesus our Lord are separated out, but in both of them is found this same knowledge. Again, pointing to the deity of who Christ is. Because if you're going to know God, He's saying you can know him through Christ, and that means then that Christ and God are tied together. They're both divinity. They're both divine. They both are God. So that's our standing, our equal standing before God. We have the same precious faith, the same valuable faith. When it comes to our standing before God, it's the same for all believers everywhere. So that should affect how we look at ourselves in God's eyes, right? It also should affect how we look at one another, often we like to put you know, certain people here and others here or say, I'm gonna, I, I like this person better because we connect better or on a, on a different level. And I understand as far as friendships, it, it works that way. And you can't know everyone to the same depth. But as far as how we treat one another and how we view one another at a very foundational level, we all have the same equal standing before God when it comes to our salvation. And so we view one another As the same, lost sinners who God has saved through his righteousness, whose God's kindness and grace and peace is working through his knowledge to change us. So that's the equal standing. Verse 3 then goes into the exceptional power. In other words, you have this standing, but if you have no strength in that status or standing, it can all fall apart, right? But here, in verse 3, we see that it's God's power at work in our lives that keeps us and guides us. Look with me at verse verse 3, where he says, According as his divine power hath given unto us. Who is he? It's Christ. It's God. It's his exceptional power that is at work here. Notice that's where it always starts. It starts with God's strength. His power, His grace, not ours. So even when it comes to the Christian life, the Christian walk, a lot of people, we say, they get it wrong when it comes to salvation. They say, you know, it's God plus works. It's Christ plus doing something. Or some people would just say, you know, I got to do something to grow or, or, or to become closer to God or, or so that God will accept me. And we know, no, that's not true. It's Christ and Christ alone. His finished work on the cross that saves us, that makes us righteous, our, our faith and belief in that, that we personally put it into, into belief. But here, sometimes when it comes to our sanctification, our growth, our walk in Christ, we often start with us a lot of times too. We say, I have to, right? If I'm gonna be a good Christian, I have to, and then you fill in the blank. And Peter is saying, no, no, no. What you need to start with is, God is and God has. This is who God is. So you we, we start with your standing. It's a belief. Okay, this is my standing before God. And it, then it turns to this is who God is. His divine power. It always starts with God's power, not our own. And what has his defi- divine power done? It has given unto us all things. The idea here is everything that we need And it pertains to two specific things. It pertains to life and to godliness. So God has not only given you a standing, a sure salvation before him, his divine power has also given unto you and to me everything we need for life and for godliness. So what is life and what is godliness? God's power is at work here, so we need to understand these. Life here, in its broadest definition, is is always something that comes from God. In other words, without God, there's no life, right? Physical or eternal. God's the one that created and put it into place. But here I believe that life is talking about life in connection with God himself. So it's not just the physical, but it's also the idea of eternal life. Didn't Christ speak of eternal life over and over and over again? And he's saying, I have come that ye might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so when I speak of eternal life, when Christ speaks of eternal life, he's not just talking about something that happens when you die in the future. Sometimes that we think, we, that's how we think of eternal life. You know, when I die, then I'll go to heaven and have eternal life. And, and throughout the scripture it's saying, no, eternal life starts at the moment of salvation. It's a present reality for you right now. You have life if you are a believer in Christ. You have life, eternal life, right now if you have put your faith in Christ because that's what God has done. So he's giving us everything we need for eternal life to live the life right now, both in salvation but also in godliness. And godliness refers, it's the idea of devotion or reverence for what God wants. Really, out of its basic form, godliness is not doing, it's, it's not just, I should say. When we think of godliness, we think of it's doing what God wants, right? That's what godliness is. If I just do what God wants. But it's much deeper than that. It has the idea of devotion. The idea here is actually thinking about God in everything I do. I think that's a better way to do it because when we say I'm doing what God wants, we can often get into that checkbox mentality. God doesn't want me to do this. He wants me to do that. And we can actually separate God and godliness into two separate boxes. You understand? I'm doing the checkboxes of this is what God wants, but it's actually devoid of God himself. Whereas godliness is actually thinking about God himself and then applying it to every aspect of life. there's there's a very similar comparison you could make to Old Testament wisdom. In other words, the skill of taking what you know about God and applying it to everyday life. That's this idea of godliness, that I'm getting to know God so that I can do what God wants. Has your wife ever given you a honeydew list? This is what she wants done. And since I love my wife, I'm going to check off those marks, right? But if you just go through and take that list, right? You have that list of, honey, this is what I'd like you to do. And you separate it from your wife completely. And you say, I'm going to do this list, but I'm not going to talk to her or spend time with her or any of those other things. But you do the list and then you come back to her six months later, 12 months, I don't know how long your list is, two years later. A decade later, yeah, but you haven't talked to her that entire time, and you say, honey, I did all the things you asked me to do. The honeydew list is complete, and what does she do? She looks at you and says, who are you, right? Where have you been? I, I don't want you just to go out and do things. I want to be with you, right? I want to experience life with you, and so if we separate those two, you get in, in big trouble, but you can merge those two at the same time, right? Because I love my wife, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to go down that list, but I'm going to talk to her about it. And we're going to have some, uh, some, maybe some back and forth of saying, honey, is this really how you want it done? And there's going to be adjustments throughout that, right? But the end goal is still the same, that those things get done because I love my wife. So God, his divine power, has given us everything that we need that pertains unto both our salvation and our sanctification. That's the idea here, that in the Bible, in God's word, through the knowledge of him, through a relationship with him, as He's revealed himself in the word, we have everything we need for salvation and for sanctification. So that's the equal standing, but also the exceptional power that God has given to us. How does that come about? He uses the same word we already looked at, Look at the middle of verse 3. It's through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Again, it's, it's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in a relationship with Christ. It's rooted in that experiential knowledge of this is who Christ is. So I have a question. Do you love your Bible? Amen. Are you glad you have a Bible? but can you love the Bible and not love the God of the Bible? Now, that's a hard question to ask yourself. say, yeah, I love the Bible, but sometimes the reason, though, that God has given us the Bible is not just so we can know about him. It's so that we can know him, so we can experience him. And so we love the Bible in so much that it is pointing us to Christ, to reveal Christ and who he is, so that we can love him. So it's through the knowledge of Him, and it's, it's, it's through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. So He's given us everything through his power that pertains to life, godliness, and it's through the knowledge of Him, again, that has called us to glory and virtue. This idea of call has the, the idea of inviting or bidding. So he's talking to believers here. God has done this to you. He's invited. He's called to you and said, I want you to look like me. Look like me in certain areas. Now, here's where some people get off track, and we'll see this again in verse 4. Can you be God? No. There There are some religions that actually teach that, that you are going to be just as God was, you're going to be exactly like that. And what does that do? Well, that both elevates man higher than he should be, but notice how that also drags God way down lower than he should be. Because if you're going to put created man on the same plane as the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, there's something wrong here. And yet, there are religions, even Mormonism would have a teaching of that, that, you know, Christ, it's going to be, you know, he's a God and you're going to kind of attain to that same level in that way. But are there attributes or characteristics of God that he wants you as his child to emulate? Absolutely. And so he's called us to his own character. And that's the idea of glory and virtue. What is glory and virtue? The idea of glory is, is really something that is heavy, is the basic Old Testament meaning. And the New Testament meaning is, is the idea of something with substance or intrinsic worth. In other words, it's something that's really important, and it's put out there, and it's on display for all to see. It's like a beautifully carved statue that's made out of pure gold. That's that's, that's something that has weight, that has substance, that has glory to it. But here it's talking about something much grander and much greater, because it's talking about God's glory. In other words, his substance, who he really is, that he carries great weight and importance, and it's based on his character. And he's called us to reflect that to others, right? And it's also based on this idea of virtue, glory and virtue. And we'll get into this in the following weeks when it actually goes through adding to your faith virtue. But this, this idea of virtue here, back in the Old Testament days, the Greeks would have said it has the idea of complete moral excellence, the idea of excellence. So at its very base meaning, this idea of virtue is that you do what you're designed to do. And so if you have a sword, if you have a virtuous sword, it would be an excellent sword. What is that sword supposed to do? It's supposed to cut things, right? So if you're going to have an excellent sword, it needs to be sharp. It needs to be able to cut things. What if you have a sword that is very dull and beat up? It no longer matches this word of virtue. It's no longer excellent because it's not doing what it's designed to do. Or you could apply this to any other thing in our life, whether it's a vehicle or a shop vac. What are they designed to do? Well, if they don't do that thing, then they're not virtuous. So it comes to this question then. What are you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, what are you designed to do? Are there a lot of opinions on that today in the world? What are we here for? What are we designed to do? And Peter here is saying, you're designed to follow after Christ, to know Christ, to show His glory, to realize your standing, to realize the power that God has given you, to realize that you have everything you need for life, for godliness. So we've seen an equal standing, we've seen the exceptional power that God gives. Thirdly, we're going to see the excellent growth available, that God actually wants growth then in our lives. Sometimes we get these out of orders that we already talked about. There's a belief and a realization of God before that true spiritual growth happens in a believer's life. Notice verse four. He says, whereby, that's through Christ, his glory, his virtue, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We'll break this verse into three parts. So we're starting with the first part. When we look at the growth, the excellent growth that is offered, whereby are given unto us what? Exceeding great and precious promises. So it's not just knowing and experiencing God. It's knowing specifically his promises. What are promises? Have you ever made a promise to someone? Sometimes we'll do conditional promises, right? If you do this, I promise that I'll do that. There's a a bargain with that. Sometimes you might do that with your kids. If you finally finish whatever is in your bowl, you can have some potato chips or ice cream, right? Whatever that is. It's a conditional promise. Here, though, the word for promise is not that at all. It's not based on a request by someone else. Here, the word promise is someone who has committed to something, regardless of of any outside influence. It's not by request, but they're going to fulfill it. So this is rooted in the very character of God. He has made these promises to us that aren't rooted in who we are, but they're rooted completely in who God is. And what kind of promises are they? They're great and precious. This exceeding great is the word mega. Or huge. We might have had a president that used those words a lot, right? Huge. It's, it's the idea of overwhelming and great. But they're not just overwhelming and huge. They're also very precious. So it has the idea of both grandeur and both intimacy. Because they are valuable, precious, in the eyes of the beholder. So here's what it comes to. Are there promises of God that you are recalling and reminding and clinging on to even today? Aren't there so many promises that we could go to that sometimes we forget though? Just the promises of who you are in Christ or the promise that, that all who call he will save or the promise that he is with us or the promise that he is coming again or the promise that the reason He hasn't come back yet is because He wants more to be saved or the promise that He has prepared a place for us so that we can be with Him for all eternity or the promise that He gives grace for every trial and every trial that comes is to grow us. And you think through all of the great and precious promises of God and what does that do for you? It allows you to experience God in the way he wants you to. It also reorients your mind, right? From the worrying, the conflict, the cares. Peter's saying here, no, focus on the great and precious promises that God has committed to you. And that is really where you you have growth. If you want to grow in your walk with God you're going to be meditating and chewing and thinking on what God has done and what he has promised. And he's saying, by these, these great and precious promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature. At first glance, this almost sounds a little blasphemous, right? What did Satan want to do? He wanted to be like God, Right? but he was really putting himself as equal with God. Here, the idea is not that you are going to be God. That is not the idea. The idea is partakers of the divine nature is that you are going to experience who God is and reflect him in what we would call his communicable attributes. And we've explained this before, but what are those? Are you all-knowing like God is all-knowing? No. But can you love like God loves? Yes. In other words, there are attributes of God that you can reflect, of Christ that you can be like. And that's why it's so important, I believe, that not just that Christ took on human flesh to die for us, but he took on human flesh and lived and showed what it is like to live as God on earth so that we can emulate Christ even in our lives today. So this idea of being partakers is a sharing or companion or a partnership idea that you're not part of God, but you're increasingly like him in the attributes. It's the idea of being transformed into the image of Christ. We've used that term before. And at the basic sense, the idea here is growing in Christ-likeness. That's what Peter is getting at here. Is that you have great promises that you're supposed to cling to. And through that, you are, you are growing in Christ-likeness. And this is, this is not stated as a command notice. He's stating it as a present reality. That there are promises you're clinging to and that you are partakers, you are growing in likeness. Because that's what believers do. That's what disciples do. If the spirit is within you, you are doing that. So you have that power of God within you to be transformed into Christ's image. And then he gives the negative side of it. Stating a present reality, notice the end of verse 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is an already present reality. Notice it says having. This is the idea of something that has happened in the past and has continuing results throughout your life. And so having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, you say, Pastor Phil, that doesn't seem like a present reality in my life because there's still a battle going on, right? Right? But Peter's saying, this is who you are. When you were saved, sin's power was broken on you. Now, we, sti- we still deal with sin's presence, right? There's still the flesh that we have to deal with. But when it comes down to the corruption worlds of the world's passion, the decay that sins brings about, the consequences that sin puts on us, he's saying we have already escaped that. We've already escaped the consequences. We've already escaped the power. We don't have to serve sin. We're not bound to that anymore, as Paul would say. We don't have to live the desires of the world, of our own lusts. So it comes to this question. Are you meditating and experiencing and knowing God and his precious promises? Do you know you're standing before God? You have that like, precious faith. Are you resting in his great divine power that has given you everything you need for salvation and for sanctification for life and for godliness? Are you a companion, a partner in being partakers of the divine nature of becoming more like Christ? And do you realize that you've escaped the corruption, the desires that are in the world? that you don't have to serve sin, you don't have to give in to your sinful desires because Christ is in you and you have that power. So Peter's encouragement to us is this is your status. This is your standing before God. You are justified. You you have an equal and precious faith just like Peter had. You have God's power, his grace, his kindness, his peace in your life. God has given you everything that you need right now so that you can live a life that is defined by godliness. You have great and precious promises to cling to that even when everything else is, doesn't make sense or the world's falling apart, God has committed things to you that will never ever change. You have an opportunity or you are being transformed into Christ's likeness because you're a believer and you grow. So Peter's challenge then to us is really one of belief, of looking at our lives and saying and recognizing who we are. And then he'll get into next week the response to that. But realize it's rooted in this. So I ask this question again, what is your status, what is your standing before God? If you're a believer, it should give you much reason to rejoice, to be confident, to go forth boldly and say, I want to be like Christ. If you're an unbeliever, the call, the bid is to see God's glory, His virtue, His excellence, your own sinfulness, realizing you can't do anything about it. But Christ has done everything for you. And putting your faith, your trust, your dependence on what Christ has done to save you, to rescue you, to make you a child of God. So Peter, a servant and an apostle of Christ, gives us encouragement that we have an equal standing, we have an exceptional power, we have opportunity for a lot of growth, exceeding growth in our lives. So let's ask God to help us that His spirit would work in our hearts to work this belief and grace in our hearts.